Welcome to another episode of the Manmukti podcast, Stories of Stigma, where we speak up about South Asian mental health. This is your host, Girandeep, and on today's episode, we are sharing our conversation with psychologist Dr. Rocky Sen, all about uncovering trauma. Now, before we dive into that conversation, I'd like to just give a quick disclosure that we will be speaking on subject matter that may be triggering for some of our listeners. Our discussion includes themes of trauma, sexual assault, bullying, and self-harm. Also, please keep in mind that though our guest speaker is a trained professional, the information shared today is not a substitute for medical advice. All right, Dr. Sen, welcome to this recording. We're so excited to have you. Finally, we can sit down and chat with you. So welcome. Thank you. Very much looking forward to this opportunity. So I would love it if you could tell our listeners a bit about yourself. Good question. So I um, am originally from India. That's where I uh, was, you know, I, I did my undergrad there and I did a master's degree in applied psychology back in India in New Delhi. And then I came to the U.S. to do grad school in counseling psychology. So I have a Ph.D. in counseling psychology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And I've been working in university counseling centers since. I now also have a private practice. Uh, I'm currently in the state of Texas in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So that's kind of my professional journey. Um, and I think overall, it's been an interesting as you know, it's been an interesting experience to live in two different countries, to have the experiences I've had, and to understand people, you know, not just in terms of their individual experiences, but also in terms of their cultural um, experiences and histories, and you know, just realizing how thing, how that how much of a difference that makes. So I think it all all converges into who I am as a person and a professional. So education plus experience. That's what you get in me. Absolutely. And is this something that you've always been drawn to or what, did it come kind of spontaneously? Oh, well, that's a complicated story because when I started, um, psychology wasn't a thing, certainly not a thing in India. So long story short, I think it was somewhat of an intuitive choice without fully really knowing what I was getting into, but I felt really, really strongly committed to doing it. It's an odd way to describe it. I mean, I didn't know, but I wanted to do it anyway. And yes, there were definitely reactions from family because, you know, how we're expected to do medicine or engineering or something of that nature, very much part of my own history. But there I was wanting to do something not medicine and um, engineering and suddenly psychology. So it didn't make much sense at the time. So I still had a commitment to doing it. Luckily, I was able to make it work. And I think I've never regretted that. So when I found psychology, I felt like I came home. So for our listeners, we also have another podcast um, guest today, someone from Manmukti, Drishti. Please tell our listeners a bit about yourself. 
Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Drishti. I joined Manmukti actually this past year. Um, I've been in the organization for a couple of months and I connected with Dr. Sun also a couple months ago and it's been really amazing talking to her and hearing her story and I think this episode that we have today is going to be super, super helpful. Even just preparing for it was super helpful for me. So I'm really, really excited. This is also my first podcast that I'll be recording. So I'm really excited about that as well. We have decided that we want to hone in on a very specific topic of trauma. That's a word that's been thrown around a lot these days, um, especially around social media. Dr. Sana, what I want to know is, what does it mean when we say someone is traumatized or what does the word trauma really signify? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a really good question to start with because the word trauma is used in a broad way you know so it, I think we use the term very widely and very loosely sometimes and I would like to talk about it not so much in terms of some jargon but I'm going to try and talk about it experientially so trauma I would describe as something that is an experience that overwhelms somebody's coping resources in that moment right so what happens is not so important as whether or not the person is able to cope with it in terms of their coping resources Okay? And that's why it's so confusing because the trauma is not inherent in the, in the event. It's more inherent in the experience. Okay? So because we can't cope with it, you know, it can sort of get stuck in our system in a sense. You know, a physiological analogy is it's almost like you cannot digest something. So it gets stuck in your system because it's not digestible. And when it gets stuck, you know, it kind of keeps coming back up. You, you can't get rid of it. You keep experiencing it. So there's still, even if the event itself has gone on, you know, it's no longer happening, but the impact of it kind of persists in the system and we keep having reactions to that event, which is also confusing for some people because, well, not, there's nothing happening right now in, in my experience. Why am I feeling like this? But it's because the initial event was not coped with and the impact therefore persists because in a sense it's undigested. That changes a lot in my mind how I'm already approaching the term of trauma, the way that you're saying that it's not always initial event, but it's how you are reacting to that situation and re-reacting to that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always this misconception, as you had mentioned, that there's an acute onset of mm-hmm. these life-changing ev- uh, events or horrifying events. Um, it can also occur over years. Is that correct? So to, to your point, I think I want to differentiate between what I would call big T trauma and little t trauma. So big T trauma is essentially, are those events, you know, are the things that we point to, oh my gosh, you know, you were in the combat, you were in Hurricane Katrina, or um, you were sexually assaulted. You know, these are events that have, obviously, they have really big significance, physiologically and emotionally, and we can point to them and say, yeah, those are likely traumas, because what are the chances that any of us were prepared to cope with something of that nature, right? So those are big T traumas, and those are the things more people are able to have an understanding of, oh my gosh, yeah, I get it. You know, you, your house was robbed in the middle of the night and somebody threatened you with a knife. Oh my gosh, I imagine that that must have been horrible for you. So th- that's the kind of trauma I think we are more likely to be sympathetic to or understanding of, right? But then we also want to talk about little t trauma, which is the kinds of small events, you know, which by themselves don't seem that particularly problematic. 
you know somebody teases you no big deal you know siblings tease each other <laughs> friends tease each other so there's no big deal there but if somebody is consistently and persistently teased around maybe let's say a particular issue say their appearance say their grades you know like if they're persistently teased all the time then no one time no big deal but over time those teasings can add up and have a cumulative effect which is the same as having maybe some big one event kind of a trauma and so that cumulative effect is what we call the little t trauma and the impact at the end of it looks a lot like what you would expect if you've had a bigger experience so the end result looks a lot of the same but it's harder to trace it back because there's not one thing so when you think about bullying for example you know bullying is often a cumulative experience maybe no one time not, nobody did anything one time that maybe that big of a deal but enough times enough people engage in those acts and then you have an experience of bullying and now you have a traumatic reaction down the road so it's important to recognize that trauma can happen at both of these levels and adding to that it's also i mean one thing is trauma in terms of what happens but trauma can also result from something that doesn't happen and by that i mean things like neglect so you know you miss one meal no big deal right but if you keep missing meals or you there's no consistency in the meals you're getting then over time that experience of missing meals something that's essential in our nourishment and our development can have a traumatic impact over time so the lack of something which is neglect can also be traumatic and that is sometimes the hardest one to point to because you know sometimes people have everything on face of it right they have food shelter a home they have a good school they have all of those material and other advantages but maybe something that is missing is maybe uh, the emotional attention the emotional support right or somebody is getting teased or criticized for their appearance or something like that you know so those kinds of things are more hidden or there is a silence around that you know maybe we don't ever give you a compliment so on the one hand everything is great but you just never get a compliment the lack of something can also create its own impact so what i'm hearing is like there's a couple different types of traumas but for these last two that you've described like the little t traumas or the ones that are more based on neglect would you say that since um at least for the little t's because they build on over time and because you know sometimes people might not receive validation for it or even for neglect it's like harder to identify mm-hmm. do you think like those could actually become potentially worse than big t traumas well, i think you you identified a really good point right there so there is the event itself right whatever is lacking or whatever has happening like there's constant teasing and that itself can accumulate into a traumatic experience fair enough but then there is the additional not having validation invalidation yeah is i look at it as it's the thing that sealed the trauma in so because the person wasn't able to understand or like get their feelings validated it actually that's what creates the trauma in them i call it seals it in in the yeah. sense that you know like there's already this reactions like you know let's say i'm somebody's teasing me i'm upset about it i'm upset about it i'm upset about it and i complain to somebody like oh my gosh you know this person keeps teasing me and somebody says you're overreacting stop it there's nothing there yeah. then i stop talking about it because i'm like nobody listens nobody cares why would i say anything to anybody but it keeps happening so now i have nowhere to take that experience so 
So I'm still experiencing what I'm what may be traumatic for me, but also I have no way of getting support. I have no way of releasing it. I have no way of processing it in a meaningful way. So then that invalidation almost seals it in. So invalidation itself can be traumatic. Call it an act of neglect if you like, but also I think in its own right it adds to the team. Dr. Sen, I have a question kind of building on that, but more on a basic nature level. Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned that this is kind of like a coping mechanism, right? And from what I understand from studying the body that we have these compensatory mechanisms mm-hmm. and like hormonal and nervous system reactions mm-hmm. to these external stimuli. Um, for like example, we have stress where we get this flood of cortisol and adrenaline, your heart starts pumping faster, blood pressure increases, muscles tighten, breath quickens, you know, that type of reaction Yes. to stress. But to trauma, is there anything similar that can happen viscerally? Mm-hmm. And how does that or can that play a role in that revisiting and triggering? Oh, well, that's a great question. And so, you know, the body, we're a united system. Like I cannot have a thought in my mind that is divorced from my physical being. So we have to think about them as part of the same organism, right? So, and the body is not a closed system. So if I have something happen to me, my body's reaction is it's, it's going to be expressing itself in those, the, the hormonal level, the physiological level, the muscles tensing, the cortisol, all of that, right? So when we have trauma experiences, most recent kinds of thinking and research is talking about how it rewires the brain. So it kind of, depending again on how early it is, you know, the earlier it is in some ways, the harder to kind of overcome not overcome it that's not fair to say but but some it's more entrenched in that sense right the earlier the trauma happens the more entrenched it can be but this idea that you know if you have a certain experience repeatedly then your brain gets used to that particular set of associations so it kind of wires your brain one way which another person having a different kind of experience is what just kind of wires it differently so you know one of the ways in which we talk about the impact of trauma is that sometimes our worldviews are affected by trauma you know, ask somebody who's been, I'll just go use the word bullying again, you know, somebody who's been bullied, like they might just not trust people. They're like, you know, people are horrible. They're just out to get me. And that becomes not just a response to the people who bullied them, but towards the world in general. Maybe they don't trust anybody. Maybe they see anybody who resembles maybe the person who bullied them as somebody to be avoided. I mean, so generalized from that. And that is talked about as a way that your brain pathways get wired a certain way based on traumatic experiences. Similarly, extended physiological response to trauma, the fight flight reaction, the cortisol and all of that can also condition the body in certain ways. And then we find it difficult to switch off those reactions. So we forget at what point to stop the cortisol from flooding our system because it feels like we're never out of the trauma. So we're constantly bathed in it. But I think the way I think about it is that, you know, certain attitudes, certain ways of thinking became our default. You know, it doesn't mean we can't change them, but it means that we have to almost consciously create alternate pathways. Yeah, that makes sense. Learn to teach ourselves to think differently, learn to give ourselves reason to have different 
uh, different responses. And then, then, you know, that way we create alternate pathways to access. So, you know, just like if you go down the same road every time on a, you know, on a patch of grass, you see the, you see that path, right? And if you start going down a different way, it's going to take a while for you to form that path. And if you stop going down the other way, then sometimes the grass will go back, grow back on that other path, right? So, but it's not instant and it's not like right away, but, but that's, that's kind of the process. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You're, you're pretty much saying that it's like, because your brain is so used to firing in a certain way, you have to consciously like recognize that it's firing in a certain way and retrain it. And like your brain fires in a certain way and that leads to those physical symptoms. So you have to become conscious of it yourself. Can I add another part to that? Because yeah, yeah. so sometimes it's consciously retraining your, your thought processes and so on. It's also sometimes having a different experience, having a different emotional experience, which we may be able to generate for ourselves. And sometimes it happens in the context of another person, right? So let's say people in the past haven't been very trustworthy. And now I think nobody else in, in my life is worth trusting because you know that's all I know. But if I find somebody who's trustworthy and I allow myself to experience that kind of you know, consistency and trust, then that can also be, but I have to allow myself to do that. But once I do that, I can also have both. So here's a new thing that my brain didn't really know about. And now my brain is going to say, oh, so there is trust. Trust is a thing. It can happen. So sometimes it's up to entirely internal process of how we can retrain ourselves. And sometimes it's an interpersonal process. So this is kind of like neuroplasticity, where Mm -hmm. the experience on the outside can rewire your brain on the inside. Exactly. And also experiencing different ideas. Exactly. Interesting. So there's different types of trauma, right? As you had mentioned, I want to touch a little bit about intergenerational trauma. Can you speak on that a bit? Um, intergenerational trauma is a term we use when a person experiences whatever may have happened to them as traumatic. We, they, they may or may not use that term to themselves, that it may never have been defined as trauma, but it has been traumatic, you know? And then somehow that that impact of that trauma creates trauma for other people. It may not be intentional by any means, but but it can be passed on. It's this idea of, have you heard of this idea, hurt people, hurt people? Right, yeah. Something along those lines, specifically intergenerationally. And, you know, as an example, I think within the Indian, uh, the South Asian context, let's say, I think of it like how, let's say a woman gets married and and is the daughter-in-law in in a family and and is not treated well, right? So that can be a traumatic experience over and over and over. Somebody's not treated well, is not treated well, is not treated well. and, And that can be traumatic over the course of a lifetime, if nothing else. And then let's say down the road, that person becomes somebody else's mother-in-law and seems feels like, well, then if this is how I was treated, I'm sure then I either should or could treat my daughter-in-law that way. And then that, that person's trauma almost gets passed on, you know, to somebody else. So that's one way to think about intergenerational trauma. I see this brought up a lot within the South Asian communities. Mm-hmm. Is this more common in South Asian communities or is this something that you notice in other cultures as well? By no means, by no means. It's, it's anywhere and everywhere. I think generally, you know, what happens with trauma is that 
trauma can affect us at so many levels. And one of those effects being obviously, you know, our own neurobiology and all that, but also our relational styles. Also, you know, how we interact with people, our worldview and all of those things, right? So, so they create our habits. They create, it can create our emotional habits. It can create our relational habits. And then wherever you are in the world, you know, if you're traumatized and, you, and it affects you that way, then there's not a whole lot to stop you from doing the same thing to whoever, who, whoever the next person is that comes your way. You know? and, and like I said, it's not an intentional harm. It's not an intentional thing that, oh, you know, I mean, sometimes it may be like, you know, some people have the same, well, I was treated this way and I'm tough. So, you know, why shouldn't this next person be treated that way and become tough too? I mean, you know, I, I've heard that in medical settings, like, you know, I pull those 36 hour shifts. And so why shouldn't the next batch of folks pull those same 36 hour shifts? Is that intergenerational trauma? You, I could argue it is. So, so I think sometimes, you know, it comes through in all kinds of different ways. Um, I think about, um, you know, what we consider like stereotypical masculinity is about being tough and not expressing emotions. And if, you know, again, it's a subjective question as to whether that you would consider that traumatic. In my experience, it can be. And then if let's say that's the experience somebody has been socialized with, and then down the road, they have a son and that son is wanting to be emotional and they're the ones who are saying stop it you don't that's not okay you can't be a boy or you can't be a man and to do that and then that can be harshly suppressed and I could say that's intergenerational trauma. Dr. Sun, it's like interesting that you bring that up I was talking to my friend the other day and she was telling me about how she was listening to something and they were saying that how for a lot of men like this this intergenerational trauma that you're talking about stems from the fact that because the only emotion that they're like allowed to feel is anger like they're not really allowed yeah. to feel sad they're not allowed to feel overly happy they're not allowed to be scared and so there's this like just built up aggression that pretty much just yeah. gets passed down which is yeah. I guess, also a really good example of intergenerational trauma as well yeah I think a, a word of caution and a caveat I want to put in there is that because trauma is such a widely defined term it's also important to recognize that you know, there's also a matter of degree associated with it. Like anything we're talking about here can have a so-called normal, even healthy level, you know? Right. I think it's fine if you get teased every so often. I mean, you know, like you can't be so like, you know, it's, like, that's fine. It's the way we relate to each other. We can, you know, bond with each other over that. And, you know, friends have their own specific, you know, inside jokes that they tease each other about. So I'm not saying all teasing needs to be eliminated from our lives. That's not what I mean. I mean that there's a normal, healthy, construct, you know, what is it, a pr even productive aspects with many of these behaviors. But at some point, I call it a tipping point, you know, after which it stops being healthy. And that's within the person's experience, it's defined by the person's experience. However, it's not to say every one of these behaviors by itself is a problem. It's the impact it has and the degree of it. What are some of the signs that Mm -hmm. This is a trauma that needs attention and needs to be healed. Right. Um, I think pay attention to how somebody's talking about it or not talking about it. I think one of the things that trauma will often do is create a sense of 
Well, I mean, it's vulnerability, right? If you're feeling, uh, you know, hurt or affected, you know, even if it's, even if it's a physical wound, right? Like, we'll, we'll try like, no, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. We, we do that, right? Because we don't treat vulnerability and, and quote unquote weakness in our society. We don't treat it very, very well, especially among some parts of the society, especially if you're a man, especially if you're the adult, you know, it's under different variations. Ideas of vulnerability and weakness are not given a lot of um, acceptance. So similarly with trauma, people don't want to talk about it. People don't want to share it because it may it may create additional repercussions like, oh, you know, you can't take that. You can't handle this little thing. So, so I think if people don't talk about it, sometimes that's also something to listen for, but also listen to how people talk about an experience. And then, you know, also recognizing some other signs like avoidance. Avoidance is a big one. And it can be an internal avoidance and it can be also an external avoidance. By that, I mean, we try to not think of things we don't like. You know, we'll, sometimes we go to great lengths, you know, like, oh, that was a difficult experience. I just don't want to think about it. Now, up to a point, that's functional, right? You can't be sitting in it all the time. But there's a point at which the avoidance becomes to the point that we draw our resources from other parts of our lives to prevent us from thinking about it or dealing with it. And so that level of avoidance can become problematic, right? Or, or external reminders, you know, I'm never going back to the place where, you know, this, this particular event happened. I got bullied in school. I'm never going back to that school, right? Now, you could argue you can live your life without going back to that school, but what if somehow that, you know, you in that town or whatever, and that's your next best job, you get your best job in that school, in that town, can you afford not to go back to it? So kind of avoidance of, the internal memories and feelings and avoidance of external um, locations or reminders of those experiences and thoughts and feelings. So avoidance is one of the ways in which we, we can recognize that somebody might be reacting to trauma. Um, if somebody has a persistently negative worldview, again, it's a matter of degree because we can all have some level of cynicism or pessimism, you know, you can rule that out. But there's a persistently negative worldview that can impact maybe other things. Like, you know what, I can't stand to be around you, man, you're such a drag. You know, if that's the kind of response, you might want to stop and say, I wonder why. Why is this person so negative? You may not like their negativity and you don't have to, but it may also be a question of why is this person so negative? What is it that made them have this particular way of thinking about them? Sometimes being stuck in a constantly negative emotional state, um, you know, fear or anxiety, like somebody's always afraid of everything or in the state of a lot of anxiety, they can never be at peace. You know, or there's a constant kind of irritability happening or there's a constant sense of guilt or shame. You know, again, easy words to throw out, but they're harder to kind of notice. But those are the kinds of things that you might, might give you a clue to somebody is probably reacting to something that may be traumatic. Um, even a very negative self-image, like I am worthless, I am hopeless, nothing good can happen for me or to me, you know, just like the negative worldview, if there's a very, very persistent negative self-view, that can also reveal that. Um, sometimes people are very detached, you know, like, they may, and, and this is not something that you'll notice in a very direct way, but, you know, somebody can show up, have a good time, this and that. But then somehow you never really feel connected to that person. You never quite, you never quite get, grasp them. So there can be a sense of estrangement or a kind of flatness um, that can that can also show up if there's recklessness and self-destructive behavior. 
one of the easiest ones to point to is, you know, drug use can be one of those, you know, destructive, self-destructive behaviors. Um, you know, um, it's one thing to, let's say, play adventure sports, but another thing to take really, really egregious risks with that. Um, so, so just kind of things. And here's another one, an exaggerated startle response. This is involuntary, so you cannot really control it. And so if somebody comes up and somebody goes, oh my God, you know, like somebody, some little something happens and somebody says, oh my gosh, that, that sudden, um, very exaggerated response can often be indicative of a, of a traumatic, you know. That's so interesting. These are hypotheses. So please don't see one example and think, oh my yeah, God. Yeah, of course. Don't yeah. have trauma. We don't know that. Um, but something that's more, uh, you know, prominent is something like flashbacks. Like if somebody has flashbacks, right. something, well, that's obviously more. If they have nightmares, that's a little bit more uh, obvious. So, you know, so some things are more obvious, but a lot of the things are on a, on a continuum of kind of normal, but now this feels like too much. At what point is it PTSD? Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? So PTSD is a diagnostic term, which is in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of something disorders, psychiatric disorders, perhaps. Right. So that's where that term is uh, officially coming from. Um, and that one has very specific criteria. I don't have a DSM handy with me, but you can, you know, it'll tell you like this person should have at least five out of these seven symptoms. And, you know, those symptoms should persist for at least one to six months, or they should have begun at the time of the event, but no later than three months after the event. So there's kind of time criteria and behavioral criteria that are listed. So if you're looking for a formal diagnosis, you kind of have to do a more of a formal assessment and go kind of by that list and say, no avoidance. And these are things in that list so you have to say, okay, you know, do you find yourself avoiding blah, blah, blah? And if they say, yeah, okay, check, you know, that's one criterion. Or do you feel unable to, mm, I don't know, express positive emotions? Okay, check. So you kind of go through the list and you see if they meet those criteria, if they meet the time criteria. And then you go, okay, it sounds like based on all of these checks, um, this person has PTSD. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's just a different way to approach it like a more clinical way to approach exactly. the topic. Exactly. I, I just wanted to clarify. So kind of going back into the whole thing of like recognizing when trauma is affecting you, it's pretty much just when it starts, it's at an extreme, like you're kind of at extremes on both ends, like you're avoiding everything or you're having like really extreme reactions. And um, it's like, you're not kind of at this balance. And then also there's this whole aspect of, um, I think you mentioned, just it's like impeding your daily life pretty much and that is kind of I guess what the person has to define define for themselves I would I would call impeding a a quality of life because people can be very successful they can be on the surface they can be successful and you know functional and everything goes great but what is their quality of life Mm -hmm. you know on the surface maybe they're in a high power job making a lot of money and have the whatever you would qualify as external criteria for success, you know, maybe they're doing all that. But what is their quality of life in the process? How well are they sleeping? Are they eating well? Are their relationships in a good state? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so, so those are the kinds of things. So again, I think one of the things with trauma is that as loosely as it's thrown around, it is really more widespread than we think it is, but it's also harder to sometimes recognize it because it doesn't show itself in the most obvious things because everything has a normal right. part. 
Right. Yeah. And it's like, it's so, because everyone's lifestyle is so different. It really depends on the person. And as we mentioned at the very beginning, it's not the actual experience, or sorry, it's not the actual event, it's the experience and how it affects you. So it's very, very personal. But yeah. Good question. Yeah. We've talked a lot about what trauma is and different types of trauma and how it's affecting people. But for our listeners, what are some tips on how they can, if they know that they're being affected, on how they can heal and how can they approach this whole process, even though it's really long? Um, And because it's so long, how can they stay motivated through it as well? So I think first part is recognizing that something might need to be different. And because trauma is sometimes difficult to spot or it's normalized, you know, sometimes what we identify is that I'm feeling stuck. People don't often spell themselves, I must be traumatized. You know, maybe what they're recognizing is that I'm feeling so stuck or I, my relationships keep messing up. I don't know what's going on here. Or, um, you know, I'm anxious all the time. I feel like I never relax. So people may be aware of those kinds of things more so than this awareness that, oh, I must have trauma in my history, you know. Um, Some people do, but I think sometimes what we end up noticing is what we're dissatisfied with. And it can be dissatisfaction with relationships or the quality of life or, you know, health and well-being, those kinds of things. And if that's what you're noticing and you've done what you think you know how to do and it's still not enough, you know, you might want to consider, well, I wonder if something else is, is being called for. And, and so some part of this may be explore, exploration, like, you know, hmm, I wonder if therapy would help or is, could this be trauma? So you almost start by asking yourself that hypothetical question. And maybe you want to do some research and, oh, what, what's a good way to treat trauma if that's what it is, you know? And, and there's lots of different ways. And right now with the trauma field being so, so much of a focus, there's a lot of different things out there, you know? There's body-based treatments, there's, you know, good old traditional therapy, there are, there's EMDR, um, people are talking a lot about somatic experiencing. And, uh, you know, there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which has is quite influential in how we think about trauma these days. So you can kind of get a feel, you can do some reading and just see if any anything in those um, materials resonates with you, you know, so essentially, the first step is to become self aware. And then research how you think you're healing could or other modalities can fit into your healing right and and i am saying it this way because sometimes people again because trauma is such a touchy subject people don't want to come out and say okay i'm traumatized help me you know so if it gives you more control if it gives you a greater sense of you know clarity to kind of do some research and get kind of figure out what you feel ready and willing to do then that could be a good starting point or you could say okay i'm really stuck my relationships suck right now or whatever whatever you know what nothing else is working or nothing else is working well enough so let me try out let me see if i can find a therapist and see if i can figure this out a little bit more so i think it's taking that first step and finding a modality that you're comfortable with or a person that you're comfortable enough with to explore some modalities i would say those are some of the ways to start but what i realized is that i think trauma treatment needs to be somewhat experiential so talk therapy in as much as it is just reporting the trauma just this happened that happened the blah 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 happened may not be as effective as having an experience that helps you move through the trauma. And the the therapeutic relationship that you can develop in the process of talk therapy, that's that's an experience. You know, you're having a different kind of experience, let's say with a therapist you trust, 
and you're experiencing somebody with whom you're experiencing trust. And if you've not had that experience before, then the trust you experience in that process can have an impact on the, on the trauma brain, in a sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And so it depends on the type of trauma that you're approaching and how you would want to approach it. Yeah. But I also feel like one of, one of the things that most trauma will do, remember, if it's, it's when your coping resources can't manage the event, which means there's an element of being out of control. So one of the long-term expri- uh, impact of trauma is the sense of feeling out of control. Now, again, it's not something you say to yourself, I'm feeling out of control, but that is an experience, you know, like I feel out of control, I feel out of control. And so in a therapy setting, how, you know, you may, un- understanding it can be helpful, also understanding how you can find a, 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 another sense, a sense of control, you know, and so those are experiential things that can matter in the treatment of trauma, right? So, so that's why I think that to the extent that somebody wants to research alternatives, that can also give them a sense of control. Like, here's how I would like to do it, you know, right. and go from there. So it's, so I think it's, it's variable. And I think each, each modality has its purpose and finding somebody you feel comfortable working with, somebody you can trust, those things go a long way in, in being helpful. So kind of piggybacking on that concept, um, this is kind of talking on how you can help yourself. But mm-hmm. what if someone in your family or a loved one may be going through a trauma? Like how can we support them? Mm-hmm. It gets tricky because one of the things that trauma can do is turn people inward because you know again because they've been traumatized by something and so if they're not able to trust if they don't feel willing or able to connect then they can turn away and turn inward which is part of the traumatic uh, impact but I think being patient and being available is a really big part of it you know and it's important to recognize that just because you want to help doesn't mean they're gonna be ready to be helped So sometimes I know that, you know, we can get impatient. We're like, you know, I'm giving you all these great resources. Why don't you do something about it? That itself is not going to help them. They won't be more likely to do something if they feel pressured and even more out of control. But if we're able to say, listen, I'm noticing uh, how your behaviors have changed or you're not, you know, you seem all, you seem distant all the time, or I really miss the friend that I used to go you know, hiking with, you know, you don't, we don't do anything anymore. So start with observable behaviors. Don't say what's wrong with you. You're crazy. Not something like that, but start with concrete, neutral, observable behaviors. You know, we don't go hiking anymore, or, you know, it's been so long since we did a movie night or, Hey, what happened? You know, you don't come to class anymore. Is everything all right? So I'm noticing these changes or, you know, we used to have so much fun together and now you never even make a joke. What's going on? So you can start by addressing, this is what I'm noticing. And that makes me concerned. So it's like giving them, uh, giving them an avenue to become self-aware by giving them actual experiences that you're noticing for them right. pretty much. Right. Okay. And using that as a way to express your concern. And so I'm worried about you. So I'm really concerned. I miss my friend or I miss my you know, sister, brother, friend, family, whoever. Um, you know, is there anything I can do? You know, um, I, I heard this podcast over there that had some ideas. <laughs> um, I want to listen to the podcast. Uh, so, you know, and kind of you can offer suggestions, but they're truly offering a suggestion. It doesn't mean that because I've said you have to, you know, it doesn't mean you have to do this. 
Okay. But your the core of the message is I am concerned and what can I do to help? Right. And let them kind of give you the lead on that. Yeah, because everyone's degree of being vulnerable is different, as you mentioned before, that there there has to be like, yeah, self-aware, but also there's a vulnerability in this and not everyone is comfortable with that. What advice do you want to give any of our listeners who may be experiencing or healing from trauma? You're not crazy. This is not a weakness. You're not defective. This is not forever. That was amazing. I like that. To the point. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, rate, review, and share the episode. Visit us on our website, manmukti.org. Or if there's any specific topic or guest speaker you'd like to hear on the podcast, definitely feel free to send us a DM or comment on our social media posts. In the meantime, remember to take care of your mind, body, and soul. This is Kirandeep, signing out.